Future of Finance podcast, where finance finds its future. Hello, I'm Dominic Cobson, co-founder of Future of Finance. My guest today is Sean Kiernan, CEO of GreenGage, a merchant bank for the age of cryptocurrency, whose strategy is both narrow and broad. The narrow mission is to take deposits from holders of cryptocurrency and lend to small and medium-sized enterprises. The broad mission is to build a bridge from the emerging world of cryptocurrencies and blockchain to the world of traditional finance. Sean, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Dominic. Now, take the narrow mission first. Lending against cryptocurrency collateral is a pretty well-established market now. We've got bank-like deposit takers issuing loans. We've got peer-to-peer lending taking place via DeFi protocols. What exactly do you plan to bring to the market? You've mentioned in our earlier discussions, taking fiat currency deposits from cryptocurrency exchanges, making fiat currency loans to SMEs. How is all that going to work? What are you bringing? So I think the core mission is to get a banking license. And the banking license is focused on the fiat side, so the pound sterling, dollar, euro um, of the crypto market. And we see there's still a very strong gap in the crypto market uh, for a fit-for-purpose bank to hold fiat deposits for crypto companies. We, we see in the, the US, in Switzerland, and, and a, a few other countries, there are several banks that serve the space. Um, in the UK, there are none um, that are actively uh, uh, offering accounts in, in pound sterling primarily to crypto companies. Um, and we think that is something the country needs. Um, there are a few firms, thankfully, offering e-money license services for payments. Um, but on, on the whole, the, the risk-weighted assets that a bank can can offer for a firm that's looking to place funds are very attractive. Um, and as a business, we've, we've seen quite a few challenger banks uh, set up, focused more on the payment side of the business, perhaps initially, and then pivot towards lending. And lending, I think, for a bank is the bread and butter of where they make money. And so our focus to, is to, to lend those deposits to a sector we think is also underserved. Uh, in addition to crypto companies, we think SMEs uh, don't necessarily get the lending that they need uh, from the existing banks in, in the UK. Now, you mentioned the banking license. Uh, you've obviously been operating for, for two or three years now without a banking license. And uh, I think your role has been as an introducing broker. So what have you been able to achieve within those constraints, not having a banking license? Well, it's, it's been interesting. I think um, out of challenges comes innovation. Um, and we, we, we needed to achieve some revenues in order to survive as a business. As a startup, I think revenues are king. Um, and for us, the focus then was what can we deliver for our anticipated client base that added value to them, built relationships with them, uh, such that when we have a banking license, we can prove that um, we, we've already onboarded clients and have done business and they, they trust us. Um, and we did see a gap in the market. I think we are still one of the very few players to be effectively an introducing broker for lending against crypto um, uh, at wholesale. So we, we don't touch retail. That's not our focus at all. Um, but we, we have a very good group of clients that we can help facilitate loans for for their long crypto positions into fiat using partners. And here we work with family offices and private equity houses um, to deliver those loans. Now, you, you mentioned risk weightings. Won't a banking license impose risk-weighted capital allocations on you? Won't that make it much harder for you to compete with these other um, lending institutions, which, which we mentioned at the outset? Very much so. And we've seen with the Basel Committee of Banking Supervision, the risk-weighted assets that a bank would have if they held crypto on the balance sheet are effectively 100% that you need to hold on your book um, to, 
to to countenance that uh, crypto assets could could fall to zero. That's that's the view of the Basel Committee. Um, in practice, as a bank, it effectively makes it punitively too expensive to hold crypto on your balance sheet. Meaning, for a bank, it's very difficult to lend on its own books against crypto assets and fiat. Um, this has shifted, as you as you rightly outlined in the introduction, the lending markets away from banks offering loans, rather to uh, other platforms, including DeFi or, or CeFi, um, uh, fit for purpose platforms that are lending against crypto, um, Celsius, BlockFi, Genesis, to name a few. Um, as a bank, and and why I think the title merchant banking is so key for us. Uh, we definitely intend to continue to work with third-party balance sheet partners as we do today, meaning that the business we facilitate today with third parties is something we intend to continue. Um, we would be watching very closely the BCBS guidelines, and we think they might soften as the market matures and perhaps the risk weighting isn't so punitive that perhaps a bank could hold crypto on its balance sheet future, but for the time being, we do not plan to do so ourselves. Right. So to be absolutely clear, from the outset, you're not going to be taking cryptocurrency deposits. You're going to be taking fiat currency deposits only, right? Uh, well, custody is a different thing to taking deposits, and that can be held in a different vehicle, perhaps in a okay. different structure. But we wouldn't be able to offer loans against crypto on our books because that would mean uh, effectively our, our capital requirements would go through the roof um, and, and we're looking to make a profit. Yeah, no, I meant deposits, not not the custody. But we'll come back to the custody thing. Yeah. Can we talk a little before we do that? Can we talk a little bit about the about the type of clients who are looking to recruit now. On on the the uh, the lending side, the asset side of the balance sheet, if you like, you're, you're aiming at SMEs. How familiar are those SMEs with the world of cryptocurrency and blockchain? Are are you, are you finding SMEs actually holding the asset or not? No, I mean, I think this is very early days for most SMEs. Um, there are some, however, that are very au okay fait with it. And, and I hear I, I reference uh, quite a few tech-focused firms. Um, many of the founders of tech firms hold crypto in their, in their private capacity. And by consequence, some of the businesses are more, more familiar with it. Mm-hmm. But the, a bread and butter SME is not really ready for crypto just yet. This is a fairly innovative thing um, and still speculative uh, on one level. Um, what we do think there are, uh, reasons for the two to merge. I, I think one, there is increasingly, it seems, an interest to pay for services in crypto, and there are platforms that, that facilitate that today. And the second is, I think, for us, the bridge between the crypto world and the SME world will be what we see as a digital debt market emerging, meaning that SMEs can raise capital in, in sums that they cannot raise from banks necessarily, given the restrictions that banks have for, for risk-weighted assets on, on multiple levels and concentration risks. Um, but we do think that SMEs need funding and to get bigger sources of funding, we think digital debt could be an answer, basically a digital bond. Now the liability side of the balance sheet, um, you, you've mentioned uh, that you're looking to, to take deposits from cryptocurrency exchanges who, who tend to hold quite a lot of fiat currency themselves. Are you aiming to recruit any other type of depositors or are they your initial medium term focus the cryptocurrency exchanges they're definitely the biggest holders of fiat for a crypto focused bank uh, the exchanges by and large hold considerable amounts of fiat currency as their clients are often looking to exchange between fiat and crypto on their platforms and that fiat needs to be held securely uh, in addition to exchanges which are the biggest client base and, and here we very kindly uh, had uh, the silvergate ipo filings which gave full disclosure on their breakdown of client base um, exchanges are roughly, I would say, uh, a half 
of the attainable market for fiat deposits in the crypto space currently. But there's a whole suite of other firms in financial services, in the tech space. Uh, crypto miners, for example, have, have, have long positions because they need to also pay salaries and electricity in, in, in fiat currencies as opposed to crypto. So there is quite a broad industry, which I think we'll cover later. Um, the UK also features quite um, quite a few firms uh, 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 across the board. And it's, it's not just financial services or exchanges. It's also tech and increasingly other, other use cases for blockchain. Uh, these still give pause to some of the banks um, that would potentially bank crypto companies or blockchain companies, um, largely because I think of, of AML concerns, but we can cover that. Why I think there are probably fewer AML concerns if you know what you're doing. Right. Let's talk a bit about your your competitive position in this in this market. Let's look forward to a time when you've got your banking license. How distinctive is that going to make you in terms of um, you've already described that it makes it more difficult to compete, but in terms of your standing, particularly among institutional investors, in terms of the services you can offer, uh, is having that banking license going to make you very distinctive? within the field of cryptocurrency deposit taking and lending? I mean, I, I've had to think about this quite a lot. Um, we, we've been looking to, to work with regulators to get a banking license for some time. Um, and a banking license is a binary. It's, it's a yes or a no. And it's, it's not easy to get, nor should it be easy to get. Um, and I think eventually, uh, should we be so lucky to receive one at some point in the future? Um, it is definitely a defensive position because you have gone through the the, the, the long path to, to receive one, but it's not the end of the road. Um, ultimately, a firm in any space wins by service and looking after clients and the, the products that, that it can offer and the relationships that it can introduce and work with. Um, and I think for us, the key, the key thing will be to create a platform business that can help to, to offer long-term value to clients and also treat them with with respect now in the in the cryptocurrency lending world the lending is collateralized and what sort of haircuts are we seeing on collateral cryptocurrency collateral posted against fiat currency loans something that i've been fascinated by is the rise of even uncollateralized lending um, uh-huh. we, we've seen that in DeFi. there's a few protocols which which you can arrange alone without having anything posted um th- this to me i mean I, i'm sure there's there's use cases and rationales for it but it's not what we do um, mm-hmm. i'm perhaps more of the old school variety that collateral is a good thing um just in the just in case um and i i think the rates that you can see in the collateralized space from proper institutional houses still are getting quite attractive um uh, uh th- these can reach anywhere from say 50 to 70 percent um, and, and there are variations on a theme uh, of, of posting, say, Bitcoin to receive fiat, um, meaning that you could get for every Bitcoin 50 cents on a dollar uh, or, or, or more if you're looking for a loan. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is, considering the volatility, volatility of the asset, quite an interesting development. Uh-huh. Well, so it's a lot uh, heftier than you'd get in the securities markets. <laughs> now, you, you mentioned... Um, the difference between deposits and custody a minute ago. Now, insofar as cryptocurrency is going to be posted as collateral, um, are you going to do the custody in-house, uh, either before or after you get the, the banking license, or are you planning to work with, or do you work with some specialist custody provider? I mean, the idea is to work with partners. I, I think if we look at the traditional financial services world as a benchmark, um, 
the, the world of custody is distinct from the world of banking. There are third parties that have uh, significant amount of capital and, and presence in the market. And we feel comfortable with that approach. Um, there are platforms that offer everything in, under the same roof. Um, and, and maybe that will be the way the market moves. But for us, we, we prefer to look to the traditional world, time-tested patterns of, of distinct fiduciary responsibility at different stages, custody, trading, et cetera. And, and, and we think that offers value for our clients ultimately um, and that they can be sure that if we went bust or any step of the value chain went bust, there were also approaches to, to offer surety for them that their monies were secure. And as we all know, 80% of, of the cryptocurrency market is, is basically Bitcoin and Ether. Are you, as you look at the marketplace, are you seeing the collateral similarly concentrated in a very narrow range of cryptocurrencies? In other words, are some cryptocurrencies more eligible as collateral than others? I mean, speaking of us specifically, those are the only two we've ever interacted with in terms of our introducing mm -hmm. programs. So we've done now several hundred million of, of volume uh, on those two uh, underlying collaterals. Um, but they're not exclusive. And we, we've seen quite a few others, particularly in the DeFi world, emerge um, that are uh, quite varied. Um, I, I would say at this stage, that's not for us. We're looking at the, the biggest and most liquid um, because we think that's probably the best uh, in, in a downturn scenario that you could exit if, if push came to shove. Yeah. Yeah. And how sophisticated is the collateral management uh, services that uh, applied to these um, these postings getting? Are we, is a kind of margin call system developed? In other words, you know, more collateral is called for when its value falls, and maybe if its value rises, uh, more credit can be advanced. Are we seeing that type of thing happening in the marketplace? Very much so. And, and we're seeing the full suite of, um, I would say, relatively sophisticated products emerging. Um, margin calls, if there is a collateralized loan, are, are a feature by, by definition. Um, uh, some houses are offering what we call systematic margin calls. And in some of the flash crashes, which crypto can have occasionally up or down, um, there have been features where some of those margin calls have not been received very well by the, the borrowers particularly, um, because they've seen that their collateral wipes out um, uh, and then bounces back quite quickly, um, at which point that, that they've, they've had to close their trade. Um, mm -hmm. What we've seen increasingly is that there have been approaches to look to moderate that impact, either through the use of hedges um, or more sophisticated trading strategies where you don't necessarily need to have a hard margin call quickly for a client. And it seems clients are responding to that in the market. Uh, I assume as the volatility decreases, that problem kind of goes away, doesn't it? Um, are you seeing any conventional forms? We've, we've talked a lot about collateralization. You've mentioned that some of, some of the lending is, is, is not even collateralized at all, but is any form of conventional credit assessment going on are people running, and I think the UK government has, has insisted this is done, uh, people running Know Your Client, AML, CFT, sanction screening checks as well. To what extent um, are people really assessing their counterparts? So by, by, by rule, um, any firm in this space uh, falls under the crypto MLR registration regime by the FCA, um, uh -huh. if they are operating in the UK. Um, and so we, we're on the, currently the temporary register and hopefully soon the permanent one subject to approval. Um, so in all cases, we, we run checks um, and we, we would in any case because of our, our backgrounds, we're, we're very old school again in that sense. Um, but in terms of credit analysis on the counterparty, um, 
this is an interesting question because that that currently doesn't fall within scope of the crypto MLR, which is currently very focused on 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 money laundering checks and potential risks there. Mm. Um, we we've taken the decision not to touch retail because we think there are risks around lending to retail clients, um, which which are uh, which are significant. And I, I think for us, the, the B2B lending market is probably more of a secure platform, knowing that the counterparties know the risks that they're going into typically. Um, but in terms of credit checks, I think that is something that should feature, particularly if retail clients were to be brought in and have that be within the regulatory perimeter, that they know what they're getting into, at least by, by disclaimers, um, which, which I hope they are used in most cases, if not necessarily in DeFi, where there are, there's nobody to give disclaimers, perhaps. Uh, you're going to need to manage the liability side of your balance sheet as well as the the asset side. How do you go about assessing the risk represented by a a, a crypto exchange as a, as a lender to your bank? What what do they pose novel types of risks in terms of credit and reputation, or are they actually quite familiar? Well, I think thankfully the, the space is growing up. Um, most of the exchanges are regulated. Most are having treasury management teams. They're having risk management teams and. And I think the, the level of, of sophistication actually helps uh, as, as the years go past to, to make that less of a risk for a firm look, looking at banking these clients. Um, however, our ICAP, or the way that we looked at developing a capital adequacy for the bank, has been quite varied and stress test on many levels um, because of the unique natures of, of uh, you mentioned reputational risk, but from one day to the next, one firm that you, you think you knew um, might have fallen foul of, of a regulator in a different jurisdiction. But I think that that is something, um, again, that we're not alone in having to have done. There, there are quite a few firms that have banked uh, sectors that are new or up and coming. Um, and I think the way you take care of that is just by allocating perhaps higher capital uh, to, to such businesses and maybe doing less, um, less risky lending or less longer term lending in case you need to, to, to match the, the liabilities and assets on the balance sheet. Uh, talking of the assets, uh, as you look at the market as it as it is now, what sort of terms are being achieved? What's the duration of these loans? What sort of size are we seeing? What what amounts are being achieved? And is it your intention to to extend the terms and increase the amounts because you're operating in a non-retail space? So how's the market now in terms of of, of duration and size? And what do you expect it to be once you've got your banking license and uh, doing things differently? So to give you a feel. Um, but one, I'd like to caveat that we're only looking at long-term ourselves. We, we see that to be a niche in the market that we add value for. Um, if we are looking at uh, shorter duration, which I think is the majority of the market, a firm like us wouldn't really add value. There are solutions that you can find relatively quickly. We, we found a specialist niche for long-term loans. And, and here we've added not just uh, lending against crypto, but lending to crypto miners based on the asset that they have as in the, the data chips, et cetera, and we found partners to deliver those solutions. Um, but the, the, the overall market, and this is just a, a figure, is that DeFi has locked in contract well over 200 billion, um, which emerged, I mean, e even last year, it was a fraction of that. I think it was 10 billion um, at the start. And crypto lending on CFI platforms, uh, a firm, uh, just one firm, Celsius, now has 30 billion under management um, uh, on, on its books uh, in terms of lending. But that, that again is quite a huge degree of growth in the, in the time that we've seen just in two years. This was, this was again a fraction of that. 
um, the majority is shorter duration, uh, if not kind of uh, uh, less than a month. Um, but uh, we've looked at perhaps the, the precious metals market as, a, as the closest comparison we can see to, to what's emerging. And um, uh, one of the most developed precious metals markets is that in, in India. Um, and the long-term duration at max uh, in terms of one year plus is perhaps 5% of the total exposure of loans originated at, at, at max. And so we think that that's still a big enough space and an interesting enough space for us to focus on, if that's any benchmark. Yeah, I'd like to come back to that um, to that metals market in, in a second. But just before I do, your definition of long term is what? More than a year? Yeah, one year plus. Okay. Um, now, you brought up the, 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 the lending against precious metals. You mentioned India. Um, do you do you see that as a market which you, in effect, will overtake? Is it complementary to you or is it something, it's just a kind of analogy for you? Um, I, I think there are very few analogies out there. So we, we have tried to look for what else in the world can be uh, something to give us an indication of, of where the market could, could, could shape towards being. Um, crypto is new um, uh, by, by many definitions and what it uh, allows is also quite innovative. Um, but it also indicates what people have been wanting to trade and do for, for millennia, which is to, to look to get value from something and to, to exchange uh, value. Um, precious metals, I think, is a, and this is a broader answer to your question, but uh, quite, quite an interesting market um, as, a, as a comparison. The, the value of silver, for example, um, is actually less now than the overall value of, of crypto assets which is a bit shocking. Um, it, it's still less than gold. Um, um, gold is a, is a bigger asset class. Um, but crypto with a valuation of over 2 trillion has surpassed um, some of the uh, say precious, precious metals that have been around for as long as humanity has been, been looking to, to store shiny things that are rare. Mm. Um, uh, and so I think uh, we, we've tried to, to look at, and I think people have always likened uh, Bitcoin to, to digital gold. Um, but uh, crypto behaves very differently um, on many on many levels, and for us, being being focused initially on this lending side, um, uh, we we do see people holding crypto as a store of value um, for for better or worse. Um, but they are looking to leverage that and to to achieve other goals um, because they're looking to hold the underlying and still get liquidity for for whatever they need day to day. Now, I don't know how that um, lending against precious metals market in India is, is regulated, but you must have a pretty clear idea now of the regulatory treatment of, of lending against uh, cryptocurrency in the current environment, but also once you've got your banking license, how it will be treated then. In other words, once you've got your banking license, presumably those deposits are going to come inside the ambit of the, uh, you know, the, the banking insurance scheme. So if you fell over as a bank, the depositors would be protected up to a certain level. Is that how it's going to work? And there's, the no, yeah. there's no protection at all now. Is that a reasonable summary? Nothing now, but conventional deposit protection once you've got a license? So on the fiat side, it would be fully standard and the bank would be fully fiat. Um, we do not intend, and just, just to be very clear, to lend against crypto on our own balance sheet. I, I think that we will continue to work with third-party partners as a service to introduce, um, but with, with ideally regulated partners to the extent we can. Um, I think there are broader questions again 
around the existing platforms that are offering lending services against crypto, particularly for retail consumers. And we have noticed increasingly that regular, regulatory interactions have been focusing on several of these businesses to, to raise questions. Um, and there have been, at least in the States, some indications around cease and desist orders that we're watching very closely, um, which might be a direction of travel and hopefully in the end will, will result in better protections for consumers. Um, and some of these businesses perhaps will become more bank-like, needing, needing regulatory capital, um, some of the mechanisms that banks are, are deploying to, to manage their credit risk exposures um, at, at scale. Mm -hmm. I'm concerned I'm not understanding something here. So it, the, the, this cryptocurrency, which is, say, held in custody with a third-party specialist provider, is that eligible as collateral? You're not holding it on your own balance sheet, but it is a form of collateral which people could advance to borrow fiat currency from you. So you're you're taking in fiat currency deposits, you're making fiat currency loans, but a form of collateral might be these assets held with third-party custodians. Is, have I misunderstood what you're doing there? Not at all. So that that is exactly what we're doing today, but it's not on our balance sheet, and it probably no. never will as a bank, because to to do such activities on a banking balance sheet on your own books and records is punitively expensive with the BCBS risk weighting, um, meaning that uh, what we do today is what we will continue to do in future, which is introduced to third-party balance sheets that are able to take that collateral and lend fiat against it. And, and that's something that I think is a very good business on a wholesale level um, and what we continue to do uh, uh, to achieve profits, hopefully, and, and good, good relationships. What are the borrowers using this, this money for? Uh, and, and I suppose I have the impression that a high proportion of the borrowing currently taking place um, in cryptocurrency, borrowing and lending and, and DeFi as well, it's being used to support trading activity. And therefore, it's a bit like, I know, the, the securities borrowing and lending market where trading firms are, are borrowing the asset to cover a short position they have or to upgrade collateral. But maybe I'm, mis I'm misunderstanding that maybe this isn't just a um, driven, the borrowing isn't driven by trading activity, maybe there's a broader range of uses that it's put to. And how is that going to change once, you, once you've got your business up and running and lending to SMEs? So I, I would suggest that there are probably perhaps very different reasons for retail borrowers, again, which we do not touch, and wholesale borrowers. Um, but I think there is definitely a, a large proportion of wholesale borrowers which are using the, the, the loan monies to 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 conduct trading activities and leveraging up and, and covering positions. Um, but there's also quite a few of them that are using it to, to build their book of business. They have, um, particularly for those firms that have um, been there from the beginning, they have the view that crypto assets will, will increase in value considerably. And for them then it's proper treasury management um, uh, that they see the asset increasing. They do not want to sell, but they might need working capital to pay for treasury uh, excuse me, to pay for salaries or, or office space. Um, and in that context, um, that makes sense for them. Um, uh, re retail consumers, we've seen quite a few people make a lot of money in crypto. Um, they might have a similar ethos uh, in that they think it's always going up. Um, they might take a loan perhaps to buy a house or to, to, to buy something that they've, they've not envisaged that they could afford. Um, and the the beauty of, of most of the lending products is actually that they're non-recourse, typically, meaning that uh, it's it's effectively a hedge on on the collateral. Uh, in that, if there is a margin call, God forbid, um, you can walk away with the fiat that you've received from the loan without any strings attached. If, if that is the construct of the loan that you've taken out, um, 
and in the case that you get 50 or 70 percent uh, fee up uh, against the collateral that you've you've put up for the loan um, and the collateral drops whatever percent it may be beyond that you at least have been a protection level that you've been able to to extract value at, at x amount um, and, and and keep that uh, and so I think that that's another reason why some people are looking at this as a as not necessarily a, a play to leverage up or take more risk, but to de-risk. So you, you could foresee retail borrowers at least um, being comfortable borrowing cryptocurrency, but having the, the their asset denominated in um, in fiat currency. So they're happy to take the risk. But you can't imagine that happening in the in the institutional market. Is that right? Um, I, I wouldn't position it that way. And I, I apologies if I if I let to convey that as, a, as an impression. I, I think the retail world, um, I, I have a very strong respect for people in the space, but it's not for us. Um, and I think the risks in that space are, are, are quite large for a retail consumer taking a, a loan. Um, oh. But I think institutional borrowers know what they're doing. By definition, they're institutions that have uh, ideally the financial acumen to, to understand the risks. Um, and in that case, uh, lending isn't always an increase of risk for them. Um, it could be a de-risking exercise for the reason I mentioned. Mm -hmm. You brought this up earlier. You, you look forward to a time maybe when companies are kind of issuing uh, long-term debt. Now, did you have in mind there that these would just be longer-term loans or did you imagine them being conventional securities, bonds, if you like, or maybe even security tokens? What did you have in mind when you were talking about long-term uh, instruments? Well, I mean, as it stands, uh, in the current iteration of, of what could be possible, um, these would have to fall under the traditional uh, bond type regimes for issuing a debt, and it could be a security token. Um, most evidently, there are firms working on this uh, across the whole suite of, of product. But I haven't seen many banks look at this as a source of perhaps raising monies for, for companies that, that are uh, their clients. Um, and, and the beauty for it for us as a startup firm with a limited balance sheet, at least initially, is that we think this could be an extension uh, of our balance sheet using the capital markets to deliver value and funding to, to clients. And the capital markets are, are looking for interesting products um, uh, as long as it can be packaged in the right way. And so we think there would be offtake. Um, but I think the, the real gap in the market, perhaps, uh, we, we have noticed that crowdfunding has come along quite quite a bit um, and the size that these peer-to-peer -peer platforms can raise typically for whatever reason maxes out at around 100k on average for a borrower um, and the type of bond markets just given the costs of, of creating a bond uh, being in the hundreds of thousands pushes this, the size that bonds are typically raised at to be say 50 million plus although there are smaller bonds I, I don't want to prejudice that um, but between that say 100K to the 50 million roughly, and these are very rough, um, there is, there is a, there's, a, there's a gap in the market um, that banks historically have filled with their own lending activities. Um, credit funds are now increasingly playing a role in lending to, to I would say, the smaller size um, uh, businesses that, that need less than 50 million. Mm -hmm. um, but we do think there could be a space perhaps for a lighter prospectus regime um, or perhaps less onerous requirements than uh, some of the bigger bond issuances require uh, mm -hmm. for, for SMEs. And that would be the market that we'd love to be part of a dialogue 
uh, as this as this emerges in the coming years. But for now, we very clearly will follow existing guidelines uh, if we are to progress in this space. Yeah. Now, I, I'd, I'd expect you to find, a, like most lenders, a lot easier to find borrowers than to find uh, lenders or investors. You've just described a sweet spot you think you can occupy somewhere between the 100,000 for crowdfunding and the, say, a million for um, smaller bank loans. Is that where you're expecting to, if you like, supplement the cryptocurrency exchange deposits? That's where you're going to find your investors or depositors is in that area between a hundred and, and a million. Would that would that be right? Or are there other groups you think you can appeal to? We, we think that that is very much a gap in the market. Um, and for a startup bank, it's a very good space to operate in because the sizes aren't too large. But if any one of them went sour, we would be able to recover at least other loans on the balance sheet. Um, in the long run, I think the size of those could increase with the likes of digital debt products. Um, but that would not be something we issue in the short term. Um, you need to, to gradually walk before you can run. Have you thought about issuing a stable coin as a way to raise deposits? It's an interesting question. Um, stable coins are, are very in vogue uh, at the moment. Um, and we've seen the Bank of England consultation on, on CBDCs, for example. Um, uh, stable coins to me uh, seem to be, at least in the direction of travel, we're, we're hearing from the market. Um, seem to be something that fits very well with the commercial bank, as, as in a bank has the level of capital and trust and, and, and regulation that it could hold uh, stablecoin assets um, uh, very well. JP Morgan, for example, uh, launched the JP Morgan coin. That, that's been used in pilots with, with Goldman Sachs to, to exchange value. Um, the, the question for a firm like us is if that makes sense for a startup bank to, to operate in and initially, I don't think it does. I think we would have to be a bit bigger before we had the, the heft and materiality for that to be meaningful for a client. Um, but it's not something I would rule out entirely. Yeah, it'll take you a while to get as big as JP Morgan, I think. Now, you, you, um, you mentioned CBDCs. Do you think they'd be good for what you're planning to do or bad or make no difference? I think they're great, to be frank. Um, I, I think uh, we, we've seen in the likes of China, what's happened with digitized payment rails uh, and, and the, the, the frictional cost reduction that that can achieve for making speedier uh, movement of monies for, for all host of clients, and particularly for cross-border transactions. I mean, that, that time that it takes for monies to settle when you try to pay someone international is, is, is quite long. And reducing risk by making that quicker would be very much a benefit. Um, I, I think the question would be how they're deployed and which is what people are asking at much bigger pay grades than I am. Um, how can a CBDC be rolled out? Uh, and again, this distinction between retail and institutional, I think is very important because ultimately I, I, I cannot see um, a world where it makes sense for retail consumers to hold deposits directly with the central bank because um, that would effectively dry the, the well of commercial banks and their, their need for those deposits to engage in lending activities. Um, so I think for, for a firm like us, we're very closely watching, um, but uh, it's something that I think uh, would be great in terms of digitizing payment rails and increasing efficiencies. But there are some questions around uh, at what level will these be rolled out, with whom, by whom, um, and how will they be monitored that I, I think are being worked out as we speak. Now something different, you recently uh, 
supported a, a comprehensive review of blockchain investment activities in the United Kingdom. It's a, you published a, a report, a very interesting report. And that found the majority of the uh, investments into blockchain in the UK have been going into fintech. 17% of the investments gone there. Crypto trading, 14%, and then a bit more if you add in uh, crypto finance companies. Does that What does that tell us? Does that tell us that the British economy is over-financialized or is just the way our economy is structured? Or does it tell us something more interesting, uh, more intriguing than that. So th this was a very big report for us. We, we worked on it with the big innovation center, deep knowledge ventures and deep knowledge analytics. Um, and Green Gage was uh, looking to refresh the report we did with the same group three years ago, uh, which chronicled that the UK could be an epicenter of blockchain innovation, um, which we still think is very much on the cards. Uh, the, the real question for us is, uh, as you've outlined, is this a financial services game or is this something where blockchain can be used for identity or uh, storage of data in all host of industries? Um, I, I think the, fi the figures we've seen in the UK, and I, I can't speak to hard numbers, but anecdotally, seem to be what we've seen in other countries as well, in terms of where the money is going into crypto or blockchain um, as an underlying technology uh, is, is predominantly in financial services. And perhaps that's because Financial services is such a big part of the UK GDP, but it's it's part of quite a few Western economies' GDP at, at a large scale. Um, London is an interesting place, and in that is an epicenter both of finance and technology, which is very few cities globally. And it does seem then a natural fit for an industry like this to emerge here. Um, but I do think that there needs to be more of a proactive industrial strategy to really capture the potential of what has emerged. Um, and, and to allow companies to grow in a, in a, in a, in a competitive, but still um, a supportive environment. Now, something else the report mentioned was the, the growing institutionalization of cryptocurrency investing. It cited Ruffer and Revan Howard, who are the usual firms put forward as, as pioneers in this area. But I was very surprised to see a figure of um, 53 cryptocurrency funds uh, being available in the UK, partly because I thought the FCA had banned that, but um, perhaps I'm misunderstanding what's what was being referred to there. But anyway, are you seeing this institutionalization coming through in your own business now? And do you expect it to come through very strongly once you've got your banking license and, uh, and are fully underway? So I think the trend is definitely, the institutional space is, is very well aware of what's happening. And um, the question is, 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 in, is in what capacity? Um, in terms of financial services, we've seen the biggest names uh, go into stable coins or custody services initially. These are probably the most straightforward um, for, for, them, for them to roll out uh, initially. But to actually hold positions in, 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 in tokens or, or crypto assets um, or to trade them is something else. And we've seen some exchanges emerge which are regulated by the FCA um, and some additional players that are looking to, to, to set up um, investment positions, but we haven't seen the big deployment of the biggest institutional investors, i.e. pension funds and insurance companies actively uh, placing uh, monies in crypto. Um, the players that have engaged have either looked at this, and, and this is a very broad brush stroke, so don't, don't quote me on it as such, but um, have engaged either because the, the principals of the firms might have an intellectual interest in the space or a private position, which they, they then have built an, an understanding of it, or they look at it as a, a hedge against inflation, which with quantitative easing, people are looking at options 
as inflation is now here to, to diversify. Yeah, inflation here heading for 5%, I, that's all the banks uh, saying on Friday. Something else this, this report uh, implied and occasionally stated quite explicitly was a concern that, that regulation in the UK is falling behind uh, both so-called offshore jurisdictions like Gibraltar and Liechtenstein, but even the United States, despite the fact that the United Kingdom is no longer part of the European Union, so Brexit's created room to make up your own regulations and a more helpful approach could be adopted. There isn't much sign of that. We've had this FCA guidance, what's inside their regulatory perimeter, what's outside it, and cryptocurrency is very much outside it. Uh, we've been told that, as you mentioned earlier, we've got to run KYC, AML, CFC sanction screening checks, um, and the Treasury's got this consultation going now on cryptocurrencies and, 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 and stable coins, uh, and the Bank of England's involved in that. But what do you think needs to be done uh, in order to make the United Kingdom a more appealing place for blockchain-based financial services? And I'm thinking here particularly of, of DeFi, how DeFi should be regulated. Do you have clear ideas in your own mind about that? Well, this is um, it's quite a big question again. Um, I, I think... At, at the at the biggest level, uh, we have to ask why why did Coinbase, which is probably the highest valuation company in the space, set up in the U.S. and and where is the biggest U.K. company um, with all the natural advantages that the U.K. has in terms of proper governance, good regulation, the rule of law, and and, and, and as I mentioned, London being centered for finance and technology. Um, I, I think the danger in the space is it moves so quickly. I mean, no one had seen DeFi coming at the scale that it came so quickly. NFTs, I think, um, I mean, I, I hadn't heard of, I, I, I've been in this space for a very long time relative to some others um, until they, they'd arrived. Um, and I think one of the things for regulators to, to, to just take account of is, is, is that there is an industry here um, that is very willing to, 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 to work in, in, in knowledge sharing and, and raising awareness of things. Um, I think the, the, the best asset that any country has is to use the, the skills that it has within its disposal um, and also show willing. Um, there, are, there are lots of inherent risks in, in many things, including in the space that I operate in. But we, we are trying to do things the right way to work, as, as you've outlined very kindly in the beginning, um, to bring the traditional financial services space to the world of crypto and to do it responsibly. And I think for us, this is a long-term game. So we're not keen on making a quick buck at all. This is this is building the roots to 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 look at changing what could be the plumbing of the financial services system uh, entirely um, if if it is digitized, um, and then rolling out additional innovative solutions that are better for consumers on top of that. Um, how that happens will require regulatory um, uh, uh, collaboration, but also a certain degree of freedom to allow firms to to innovate work working with regulators, but without having necessarily um, uh, an environment where regulation is stifled, or where innovation is stifled, apologies. Mm -hmm. uh, striking that balance between freedom and restraint, I suppose, is what is what effective regulation is all about. One of the other points the report makes is that some of the most, whatever's going on on the regulation side, some of the most prominent DeFi projects are actually based here um, in the United Kingdom. and. In a way, whether you like it or not, you're you're going to be part of that market. Do you ever worry that the market, some of the things you see happening in DeFi, uh, lending and staking, like 
people moving in effectively moving deposits around every 15 minutes in pursuit of a, of a higher yield. So you get this constant switching going on. Do you ever worry that developments like that could make running a licensed bank like the one you have in mind very unstable? Your deposit base becomes, if you like, an unstable part of your uh, of your structure. Do you do you worry about that or not? So we we, we don't do anything in DeFi. And I, I want to caveat everything I say sub subsequently by making that very clear. Um, and there's a whole host of reasons we don't engage in DeFi today. And I think primarily it's because of the a AML and KYC. I mentioned Sean, you're, you're going to be you're part of this evolving universe, I suppose. That it wasn't just you were in it today, but I'm thinking that yeah. as the market evolves, you're going to be drawn into it. Am I, am I wrong about that as well? well? Uh, and, and again, my second caveat is we, we would love to um, be part of it. Um, and we actually wrote a white paper uh, not too long ago, which is on our website, exploring some of the questions around how a firm like us, who is trying to do the right thing, could engage in DeFi and still hold its head high. Um, DeFi is, um, is a fascinating development. Uh, and in a way, it flips the head on <clears throat> how, how does crowdfunding work and, and brings it that peer-to-peer that -peer ideology into a much broader sense. And yet, um, it still is movements of money. It still has the need for what we think is fiduciary uh, responsibility along the, the movement of money uh, between actors. And uh, as it stands today, um, there are deep concerns we have around if you do not know, know the other leg of a trade, how could you engage in a financial transaction as a regulated firm um, without the capacity to run KYC or ML checks? And there are solutions to this emerging. Um, there are concepts like, I uh, say, a walled garden where there are firms that have been or individuals or actors that have been fully vetted, just trading amongst themselves. You can have blacklists or whitelists of, of, of bona fide or not necessarily bona fide um, actors which are, which are prevented from engaging with things. Um, but again, the reason I think I was keen on CBDCs and why I think that could be a positive for, for a, a central bank or a country to explore is, is the capacity for efficiencies. Um, if, if you can reduce the, the, the frictional cost of, of trading or exchanging or finding somebody to do, to do business with in, in, in a proper context, that can allow them for more frequent transactions. And, and to, your, to your question on if, uh, if that's a challenge for a bank uh, to have clients that trade all the time and move deposits very quickly, I think it would be. But I think you could rise to that, you could rise to that challenge. Um, and I think banks will have to rise to that challenge. I think long-term sticky deposits are fantastic and everyone will fight for them. Um, but if there are ways to have a, a really sophisticated treasury management system and use the new technologies to, to monitor flows of funds, I, I think there is a way to do this uh, as a proper business. And I think that will emerge in, in time. And, and that's why we're keen to follow it. One final question, uh, Sean, if you, if you take the view as I do that, cryptocurrencies, uh, DeFi, CBDCs, tokenization. So these are all points on a, on a spectrum. And that, that one day, these innovations which are, which are coming out of the cryptocurrency and DeFi and tokenization worlds are going to spill over that bridge which you're building between the traditional financial world and the financial world, which is, which is emerging through those innovations and experiments. Do you think that some kind of balance eventually is going to have to be struck between traditional deposit taking and lending style banking uh, between centralized banks and, and, and clients that want to move and this sort of DeFi world of decentralized 
self-executing peer-to-peer protocols. Do you have an idea yet as you look 5, 10, 15 years ahead where you think that balance might be struck? Because I hear everything you said about not being involved in DeFi and, and how you think it's fascinating and so on, but and, and you're going to be part of this evolution going forward. You want to be part of it. You want to build those bridges. Where do you think that balance is going to be struck? Where's it going to be found? Um, I, I think it's very dangerous to have a, a crystal ball. Um, and, and so I can only speak in terms of principles. Um, but I, I do think there will be projects. And I think regulators are looking at this, um, having it be deemed a systemic risk. Um, uh, not, not, not too long ago, um, uh, that uh, DeFi will, will change and, and in some capacity will be brought within the regulatory perimeter. And I, I don't see that as a bad thing. I think um, uh, setting principles for conduct um, are, are a very good thing to give trust and to allow people to engage at scale. Um, I think when that happens, and that will be uh, a matter of years, I don't think this is going to come quickly. Um, we could see then institutional monies come in at a level that have not yet happened um, if there are the right uh, players to offer solutions, good, 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 um, good practice and, and, and ultimately insurance and capacity to make good if transactions um, uh, are, are hacked or if there's some issue uh, with the counterparty. When that happens, um, I'm going to repeat the mention I made of, of the plumbing of financial services. Um, we're still operating on, on fairly old school plumbing um, in the sense that uh, some transactions are still being handled by paper and, and there are still many actors along the, the value chain of financial services that have what could be deemed a rent or a, a certain, a certain uh, role that perhaps do, doesn't need to be there. Um, if if a digitized value chain emerges. Um, I don't know how that's going to take place and I don't know which actors will evolve and which will adopt um, the new technologies, but I do see it as inevitable in a sense that uh, the, the, the fintech revolution that's happened largely in, in the front end of financial services will happen in, in, in the core. And when that happens, I think uh, traditional banks will, will need to adapt and that's what we hope to be part of the story of. Mm-hmm. Well, Kenan, thanks very much.